0: So, we're going to look at uh, uh, a couple of things. We're going to u- uh, look at uh, how the word Spirit is used. We're going to try and explain from Isaiah 63 the, the use of the Holy Spirit there. That's actually one of two chapters in the Old Testament that uses the phrase Holy Spirit, surprisingly. Um, we're going to show how God uses His Spirit. What is the Spirit? why is it unknown to people why is it a concept that people find quite difficult and um, and what does it present about God that is actually really important and we hope to come to that in our final slide so so hang in there because we're going to come to a very important conclusion at the end that tells us about uh, uh, about the Holy Spirit and its impact on individuals because at the end of the day That's why the Christadelphians present lectures and presentations is because we really believe that uh, Christ is coming to the earth and understanding the Bible is essential for that that, uh, message to be effective. But let's just first start with some Bible concepts and I'm going to uh, deviate a little bit just for one slide from my subject and I want to deal with the character of God. Okay, because this is uh, the springboard, really, uh, for why we need to consider uh, the Holy Spirit of God and what that means. So what is God like? Well, his character or his, the types of behaviour, his moral qualities, okay, his behaviour in certain circumstances. They are all the things that make up his character. What is he like? Well, you may have heard these words before. He is kind. Yet inflexible in the requirements of his law. He is loving and compassionate, yet terrible as a destroying fire against the rebellious and the guilty. You can see there's two elements of his character coming out, isn't there? Um, loving and judgmental. He is forgiving towards offences, yet jealous of his dignity, or the dignity, the glory, and the supremacy of his name. And some of the older people in the audience will have guessed where I'm quoting from. He is true and faithful. So the Bible has very specific references to the character of God in Exodus 32, which you may know and which we're not going to turn to. But the physical properties of God um, are another element of what we need to talk about. So having uh, talked about his characteristics, his behaviours, the type of God that he is, let's now consider the um, the physical side. Now, the Bible doesn't present some unreal or, um, uh, or uh, you know, unrelatable experience about what God is, either physically or in his character. They're very relatable to human beings. The Holy Spirit, as uh, we're going to learn, is a portion of his uh, derived energy um, that delivers the moral requirements that we talked about, the things that lead to his behaviour, the things that lead and contribute to the way he acts. So uh, uh, sometimes people say, well, spirit's rather an undefinable sort of thing. It's, a, uh, it, it's so hard to actually pin down what it's actually like. Well, we hope this evening to make that nice and simple for you um, because, in actual fact, the physical properties of God are also defined by his spirit. He is defined in the Bible as having unlimited power. He is the source of all energy. Energy would be the modern-day word for what we use as the word power. We understand energy. We understand hydraulic energy, maybe if you're a little bit older. We understand uh, energy by horsepower uh, used in a vehicle if you're about to or want to drive dad's car. Uh, We understand electrical energy. We understand it powers um, things in our houses. So we understand the word energy as, as the source of power, don't we? God is that source of power in total. In the whole universe we're going to show that a little bit later on he's immortal that means he's ever-living there's not a chance of him dying or perishing or passing away that is very different to humans isn't it God is ever-living he is invisible is invisible to man but he's very visible to Jesus Christ who sits in his presence the Bible describes, and the angels that do his bidding and listen to his word. Okay, <clears throat> Another quality about God is that he's all-knowing. That is, he's aware of all things, all things that have ever happened in the past, Okay, from before the creation even. He's very aware of what is happening in the present. Okay, Things that are happening in the world today are controlled and influenced by God, and he is very aware of all the things that will happen in the future. So that is a very, very broad scope of awareness, isn't it? He knows all of that. And the Bible shares some very interesting quotes to prove those. The Bible also says that he's all-present. He's everywhere present. Okay? And we're going to come to really what that means in a minute now if you're a scholar of the english language you would say then as i was taught maybe 40 years ago by a, a very wonderful teacher of bible truths he said god is omnipotent all-powerful he is omnipresent that is all present everywhere present and omniscient so you can write those words down and learn some new words this evening. That is, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing. Now, our lecture this evening is actually going to take the form of what I'm going to call a catechism. You may not know what a catechism is. Some people will think, well, it's always a, already a cataclysm. It's already a disaster. Uh, hopefully not. I know the frown on Uncle Des' face may suggest something different, but that's okay. We can, we can chat afterwards, Uncle Des, but we're gonna take the form of a catechism. Now, a catechism, is an old English word that means to teach by using the form of question and answer and some of you might have guessed where we're going and because we are seeking answers from the Bible okay, we're going to add by providing some very definite proofs from the Bible uh, using the evidence that Bible things, because our lecture title is The Bible's Definition of uh, the Holy Spirit of God okay so we're going to find some very definitive evidence of what that is. The uh, the form of catechism is not a new one. It's quite an old one. It was written in 1886 by well, a very respected Christadelphian brother, and he wrote these things. And I don't know that in the last 140 years, certainly I have not seen a better written explanation of the Holy Spirit power of God as contained in the words we're going to learn right now. So our first question is, is God confined to heaven though dwelling there? And the answer, because this is a catechism, and the answer that is no, he's not confined to heaven. Okay. He, uh, noth- uh, he is everywhere present, as we've stated, and nothing can be hid from his knowledge. Now, the proof for that comes from an Old Testament prophet near where we have read our reading this evening. So, turn a few pages forward to the prophet Jeremiah and verse uh, chapter 23, verse 24, where the prophet Jeremiah writing the words that God gave him said these words. And he's talking about some false prophets that had come along. And he says in his frustration, he says in verse 24 Can any hide himself in secret places that I, God, shall not see him, saith the Lord? That is, can anybody run away from God and scurry off to, to a place and, and hide away do not I fill heaven and earth says the Lord so this is a direct record of what God had spoken in this question and answer this catechism with uh, Jeremiah himself he says I've heard what the prophets have said that prophesy lies in my names I've dreamed of I've dreamed okay and Jeremiah is disgusted by the fact that people believed that God would never, ever hear what they said. And Jeremiah says, God has told me that he is everywhere present. Let's go to another psalm. And the psalms are very expressive and fantastic references because they describe in a lot of detail, extremely well, by the, the heart and soul of one of the best poets that the Bible ever had, the man David. Okay? And in actual fact, in this psalm, if you read it carefully, uh, uh, you will find descriptions of God's omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence in the verses in this psalm. We're not going to cover all of them tonight, but here's uh, some of the evidence of the fact that God is everywhere present O Lord, he says in verse 1 of Psalm 139 Thou hast searched and, uh, me and known me Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising Thou understandest my thoughts afar off Thou compassed my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways For it is not a word in my tongue but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether You see the interest that God has in humankind, and David declares that his God knew the day-to-day events. Now, that's certainly the present. He knows what he's sitting down and his uprising. He knows the time that he goes to bed, and he knows the time that he gets up for work in the morning or for school in the morning. And not only that, you understand my thoughts. You understand them far off. Okay. You know, and he says they are compassed and, and the expression there is to winnow. It means to to separate the types of thoughts and, and my intentions and my ambitions. Okay? And, and and you break all that apart and you've examined it and looked at it. Okay? And you're acquainted with all my ways. You see the level of interest that God has in people is significant and he has the power and the presence to understand that. So then if God uh, is God confined to heaven though dwelling there no he's not. He is very interested and very aware of what people on the earth are doing. In what way the writer of this book from 1886 says, is God everywhere present if he dwell in heaven? How does that happen? How do we come to the conclusion that God knew what was happening in David's life 3,000 years ago and he knows what's happening in our life even though he dwells in heaven? The answer that this writer gives is God is everywhere present by his spirit which proceeds, goes forth, issues out of him and fills all space and in another place the author of this particular book was asked well how could you describe God and he said well it's like this if the whole universe is is based on the phenomena of things rotating round another The moon goes around the earth, the earth goes around the sun, the sun goes around in the solar system, the solar system goes around in the Milky Way, the Milky Way goes around in a massive system that we're only just starting to understand and there's nebula and big stars and black holes and other things and that's all going around. And he said, well imagine that the centre point of everything that is going around is God himself which is derived from this proof here okay, and derived from uh, the belief that uh, the writer had uh, of of God as a concept God is at the centre of that His spirit proceeds from Him and fills all space He is the centre of the universe even though we don't actually know the size of that universe We call it, in mathematical terms, infinity. But they're trying to find out. They're up to billions of light years. They haven't yet got to the end of it. They're still searching. They're sending things further and out. They're getting radio telescopes to go further and further out. And still they haven't found the edge of that universe, have they? And what the Bible says, as interpreted by this writer, is God's spirit fills that whole space isn't that a magnificent picture the proof is uh, verse 7 and 8 of this psalm whither shall i go from thy spirit or whither shall i flee from thy presence if i ascend up into the heaven says david thou art there if i go down into the grave under the earth where people are buried just translated here hell but but it means the grave a hole in the ground behold you're there as well if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea get a boat and travel as far as I can out over the horizon okay God's there uh, even there shalt thine hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me so he's now saying he is a wonderful god that is interested in me even though i am in the remotest most desolate most uh most um exposed part of the universe Uh, you know god is there if i say in verse 11 surely the darkness shall cover me even the night shall light me yea the darkness hideth not from thee but the night shineth of the day the darkness and the light are both alike. So if you go into the deepest, darkest cave, no light from the sun, no light from your torch, God can see there. Okay, uh, And he then talks about his birth and, uh, and um, uh, his, his development as a human being. And he says in verse 14, here's my reflection on God and what he really is. I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works that my soul knoweth right well. He came to the conclusion when considering this wonderful God that had visibility of all things across all mountains and seas and lakes and holes in the ground, mine shafts, if you will, you know, graves where people are buried, a God that knew everything about that. Okay, he said, that is a wonderful God. And he's made a human being to, to recognise and understand that. Okay. And he says, verse 15, my substance was not hid from you. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, you know, before I existed, you knew about the, uh, the coming into being of me as a person. Now, that's an incredible God, isn't it? Okay. That's the Bible's concept of God. Let's have a look at some other interesting proofs that uh, this writer uses that are also really, really uh, important in the context of uh, of this argument. <clears throat> uh, let's first go to this slide, though, and answer the next question. <clears throat> what is the spirit of God? So he now says, well, we know that God's spirit is everywhere. We know that it's present. By by this effective power and energy that sees into all the little holes in the ground and, and it's present at the mountain, and it's uh, uh, present at the mountains and it's, and it can travel the furthest across the seas. Okay, what is it? That's a very logical question to answer. Uh, ask, isn't it? In this uh, in this little question answer statement, he says, the spirit of God is his. That is God's invisible power or energy breathed forth from his presence and of like nature with his glorious person. See, he's joining two elements there together, isn't he? By this, heaven and earth have been made and are preserved in being from moment to moment. In this we live and move and have our being in him. Now, that was what David had declared, hadn't he? He said, God, you knew me before I was born, you knew me when i was just the developing fetus in a womb and when i came into the world you knew all about that okay so he says in this we live and move and have our being in him see very powerful argument isn't it and what's the proof that he uses for that well let's come back just before we go back into the old testament Psalm 33 verse 6 because here's some very illuminating quotes about what the Spirit of God is and exactly. And this is where it gets fascinating. He has just described, the psalmist in Psalm 33, the characteristics of God which we described at the beginning of the lecture. He loved righteousness and judgment. There's those two elements. He says the earth is full of his goodness. Okay? It means his mercy. Okay? But he says, by the word, in verse 6, of the Lord, were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. This is the power of uh, the argument that this writer raises is that now we're seeing the effectiveness of God's spirit and how it operates. It works by the issue of a command. God says something, he exhales or he speaks a command and the heavens are made. He states that somebody's going to be born, and it happens. He says, all the host of them, that is, the host of the heavens, the stars, they are all by the breath of his mouth. This is the fundamental facts of God's Spirit emanating from the the source or the origin of, of all things as described by the Bible. What did he do? Verse 7, he gathered the waters of the sea together as a heap. See, it's describing pulling all the waters together, isn't it? He laid up the depths in storehouses. He let the earth fear the Lord. He says, sorry, verse 8, he says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Here is a wonderful creator. Here is a wonderful sustainer for he spake verse 9 and it was done sounds a bit like magic doesn't it he commanded and it stood fast fast okay so here's the emanating spirit from God as a being that that creates and sustains all things the world and the universe is a, uh, controlled by the spoken word of the Lord God. They were made, they sustained, and they're supported and changed by him. <clears throat> and there's uh, many other proofs that we could go to to support that. Let's have a look at another one <clears throat> in Psalm 104 that supports some of the things that we've already talked about. Psalm 104, verse 30. Where we read, um, this is the psalmist speaking about the wonders, uh, the manifold wonder of God's work, the wisdom that he made them all with, and the uh, earth as evidence of the richness and the wonderment and the fantastic God that we have. He's talked about angels. He's talked about all the clouds and how they come to uh, magically appear. He talks about um, you know, how the springs run down into the valleys and into the sea, and the sea never fills, and somehow it all returns, and the, the whole water cycle is described. He talks about how grass is grown for the cattle, and the cattle gets energy and gives us milk, and then, you know, it, it, you know, and develops meat, and we eat chops for lunch. Okay, and he says all these things are happening because there's a God at the centre of it. But the verse I want to have a look at here specifically is, um, is uh, verse, uh, let's say, uh, verse 27. These wait all upon thee that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. So all the animals, all the seasons, all the things that happen around us in life wait on God that, uh, that he may issue his command. That thou givest them that gather, thou openest thy hand, they are filled with good. Verse 29, thou hidest thy face, they are troubled, thou takest away their breath, they die and return to the dust. See, that's the consequence of God saying, no longer do I issue life. The the body uh, it d- returns to the dust that it was made of. Verse 30, thou sendeth forth thy spirit, and here we have our word for this evening, they are created. And he's already described that, hasn't he? He says anything that's created is because God sends forth his spirit by way of a word from his mouth, and they are created. And thou renewest the face of the earth. The glory of the Lord shall endure for ever. The Lord shall rejoice in his work. He looked on the earth and it trembled. He toucheth the hills and they smoke. So there's very, very wonderful language, isn't it, of how powerful the God of the heavens is. <clears throat> okay. So the question then that our author asks in this particular book: Well, we we now understand that an eternal being is at the source and uh, of all energy in the universe. When he speaks, things are created. When he decides to stop something, things die. Okay, and that's what we call his spirit. Okay, it's a power that supports life, and when it's retracted, life passes away. Well the next question he asks is is God then separate and different from the spirit of God? Okay how are those two things separate or are they separate? And his very very considered and wonderful answer is no God and his spirit cannot be separated. They are both one. The sun and the light that comes from the sun are both one. So God and the spirit that comes from the God are both one. You cannot separate them. God is the centre and glorious substantial form of the spirit that fills heaven and earth. So can you separate the light from the sun? Could you take the sun and put water on it to cool it down well if you did and you managed to do that and the thousands and millions of megajoules of energy were somehow stopped it would no longer be the sun would it it would disappear as a life source of energy for our planet and it would no longer be a sun so you cannot separate it even if you tried and this is the concept that uh, the author actually writes for us Robert Roberts as you've all guessed by now is is that got the sun and its light or its warmth are the same by analogy as God and his spirit one is the product of the other one is the result of the interaction and command of the other and of course we've got those all those wonderful descriptive uh, places in Job for instance Uh, the spirit of God hath made me and the breath of the almighty hath given me life so they're one and the same thing God and his spirit if he intends to give life he says it and life is given if he declares that life should be taken away it is taken away because of his word Proof number two, and you'll notice that this is the first time we have a proof from the New Testament. That might be remarkable. We'll uh, we'll find out why in a second. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Gospel of John uh, 4 verse 24. Uh, but I want to just go to another one in Isaiah which is very very interesting as well um, which is one of the proofs that this author uses um, in Isaiah 48 verse 16 where he writes um, come ye near unto me this is the prophet calling out requesting that uh, that they come near and understand who God is and <coughs> um, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. So he says, I've not whispered something or spoken it only to a few people. I've shouted it out. From the time that is, there I am. And now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go see in verse 16 uh, there, am I now, uh, there am I he says and now the Lord God and his spirit hath sent me the, the prophet combines the idea of God and his spirit as one and said you have heard my commandments it's been declared from a long time ago Okay, you cannot escape it. God, the Word He has spoken, the power that comes from Him is one thing; they cannot be separated. Uh, and of course, we had that uh, um, that wonderful quote from Psalm 139 that we've already um, uh, thing. Now, because we've had some excellent proofs, and our very first in the New Testament, we need to do some basic Greek language skills, because. Um, The New Testament was originally written in the Greek language and translated into English. So, uh, let me contrast that first with the, the word that we've been talking about in the Old Testament is the word in the Hebrew called ruach. That is predominantly the word that is used for the word spirit, and it literally means the breath. Now, we've seen how that's been used, isn't it, as the spoken word, the breath, and we're going to see that translated uh, into the New Testament as the as the Greek word pneuma, and it has an interesting concept uh, there as well. <clears throat> so let's just go there. Um, um, pneuma, of course, is the uh, origin of our English word uh, pneumatic, for instance, uh, because that relates to, for instance, a pneumatic tire that has air in it. Okay, so it's a tyre filled with air. Uh, the word pneumonia is, comes from uh, a problem with the lungs where the lung capacity or the air in the lung capacity is reduced and therefore we can't breathe properly. Happens in old age, uh, particularly, but uh, and also when you get things like COVID and other things. Uh, a pneumonic illness is an illness relating to the lungs. Or your breathing so the word pneuma is always associated with the effectiveness of air or breathing there's nothing super special about it but it's the word that the New Testament has used to translate it uh, pr- primarily as spirit so it's very uh, relatable to the Hebrew word ruach which is used of wind breath and the command of course of God <coughs> So let's just go to that, uh, uh, that quote. Oh, no, no, no we've, uh, we've see, seen it up on the screen there. So we've, uh, we've come to uh, the, the end of what we're going to do in, in terms of the catechism uh, or the, uh, the question and answers uh, in terms of the concept of God and um, his spirit that, uh, that is with him at all times and inseparable from his being. Now we want to extend this because our subject is about the Holy Spirit of God. It's not just about the Spirit of God. So how does this fit? Well, holy simply means to be separate for a specific purpose or intention. It doesn't mean that it carries anything different to the Spirit. And so I've put a pie chart up there. Um, I don't know whether the portions are correct at all, but really, a special portion of the same spirit is really what the idea is conveyed by the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, and we find that in, question, in uh, particular, like uh, examples, like John. Now, when we go to John, uh, we find that it's used in two different ways. It's translated into two different words. And here it gets a little bit confusing so if you were an English person you like the flowery language of um, people of the uh, 15th and 16th century you would try to use exotic words to create a different thing when in actual fact the same word is used and this is the challenge that we get in the New Testament when we come across the word ghost Let's read John 1 verse 33, where the word pneuma is used to describe, which is exactly the same word in John 4 verse 24 that we read about before, where it said, God is a spirit. Okay, So in John 1 and I knew him not, but he that sent me, this is John the Baptist speaking actually, and he came to introduce the Lord Jesus Christ, and he said, I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptise with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit okay now that's the word the Greek word pneuma because we're in the New Testament now okay whoever you see the Spirit descending upon and remaining on him the same is he which baptized with the holy pneuma that word ghost in the original Greek is actually our same word pneuma But the translators wanted to put a different inflection and create an illusion of something that is very different, which they successfully did and confused everybody's sins. In actual fact, it's the same word. So we should read, okay, the sentence like this. The same said unto me, starting about halfway through, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is which baptised with the Holy Spirit. It's just a portion, it's a special portion of the same Spirit. And there should be no complexity with that because everything that is God-derived is contained in this Spirit. It is all present. It's just that some special purpose is attached to this. In this case, the special purpose was the baptismal, uh, the the uh, anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ after his baptism with the power of God's Spirit. And he says, I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So it declared to the whole nation by this special act and the special use of a portion of God's Spirit to uh, to descend in the form of a dove, as another record says, uh, to upon uh, Jesus Christ after his baptism and a voice was heard saying this is my beloved son and of course that declaration is very consistent to everything that we know of God Okay, um, uh, before and after this <clears throat> now just before we get into the New Testament I just want to duck quickly back into the Old Testament because uh, then we can cover off the, uh, the reading that we uh, read this uh, this evening in Isaiah and also go to this remarkable chapter in Psalm 51, which is the third of three occurrences of the phrase Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Who would believe it only occurs three times? That is the case. It may be translated other ways, but in terms of Holy Spirit, the words themselves as a phrase, it only considers. Now, here we have an interesting inflection Okay, on the use of this phrase and an understanding of how David uses uh, and, and the meaning of the, the Holy Spirit. That is important to our understanding of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We've seen a little bit of it. We'll go to Isaiah 63 in a moment. But let's first look at our first quote here, Psalm 51, verse 11. David has sinned. His life is a mess. He's he's committed a heinous crime of murder and adultery and he pours out his heart to God. He says, I'm now separated from God. Okay, I feel like I've disgraced myself. I'm now away from God. I, I feel like I want to be out of your presence. Okay, but he turns back to his God in Psalm 51 and he says... I need to be cleansed, God. I need to be healed. I need to be fixed. My bones are aching with the tragedy of this sin and mistake I've made. I need to come back to you, okay? And he requests of God in verse nine, Hide Thy face from my sins, okay? They're the things that have separated me from from Your presence. Blot out mine iniquity. So he's using this very. Very incredible language, and he's saying, "If you've got a book of of all my iniquities, he's saying, get a rubber out and 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 blot them all out. Get rid of them. If you need to pour ink all over them to blot them out, then then just get rid of them." He says, "Create in me a he, a clean heart, and renew a right spirit in me." You see, there's our word spirit again. Here's our important verse: "Cast me not away." from thy presence, that's our word spirit Okay, and take not thy holy spirit from me so here we get connecting ideas now this is a Hebraism, it's a way of teaching by repetition using similar but connected ideas, you see what he's joined together, cast me not away from thy presence God Okay, so I understand you are all present. Don't cast me out of that. And take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You see what he's saying? He's saying your Holy Spirit is your presence. I'm always in your presence. Don't take away your, your Holy Spirit from me. It is who you are, God. And, and if you reject me, And if you don't blot out my sins, and if you cast me away, I'm ruined. I know and understand that if you command it and retract that spirit, I'm gone. He says, don't do that. I deserve it, but don't do it. And he says, cast me not away. Let's go to Isaiah 63, because this is the other two occurrences of the phrase Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And, of course, it's a rather unusual chapter if you're not familiar with your Bible, but a wonderful chapter for those that are Bible students and understand the coming back to Jesus Christ to the earth again. Here the prophet is lamenting and saying, why don't the people of Israel understand how good God has been their whole lives? He says, why don't they understand that? I can't understand why they don't grasp this wonderful God who shows loving kindness in verse 7, twice it's mentioned, who's who's passed the way for them, who's, who's led them through the wilderness. In all their affliction he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. So now we understand that God is active in angels because he commands them to do his will Okay, In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He's talking about bringing them out of Egypt. And he bare them and carried them all the days. What did Israel do in response? They rebelled. They turned against him and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. He chose not to destroy them in this instance, but he turned back away from them. So here's the use of um, God's Holy Spirit in a different sense than what we have heard so far. Let's go and read verse... uh, uh, Where is the other one? Good question. Verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? So God said, I will choose Moses. I will give him my Holy Spirit. He's now imparting Moses with a portion of his Holy Spirit. And he's compelling Moses to go and be a shepherd. To lead people, uh, the children of Israel out of uh, out of uh, Egypt, okay, and of course they rebelled and vexed him, okay. And uh, God is going to deliver Israel by putting the Holy Spirit into Moses and giving them a leader who was never to to look old, whose whose uh, whose uh, feet were going to walk all over through the wilderness, who was going to live hundred and twenty years and then die on mount uh, uh, just outside of uh, the the promised land himself but God gave him the ability to do that and of course now we have the evidence of God's uh, Holy Spirit working in humankind to empower them to do his will he commanded that his child would be driven out of Egypt the way he did that was by his angels and working through Michael, uh, working through Moses uh, to to affect that purpose, all right? Okay, so let's uh, race on to the New Testament as we conclude our thoughts this evening just to very briefly see uh, some of the um, things uh, and the way that the Holy Spirit is effective in the New Testament so once again we're talking really Bible fundamentals here here's our first occurrence in the New Testament of the use of the Holy Spirit or the phrase the Holy Spirit now the uh, verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1 so the first chapter of the New Testament the 18th verse now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together She was found with child of the Holy, Ah. Now here we have the word Numa again, and of course we should say she was of with child of the Holy Spirit. So it is seen to be the transformative power influencing, giving birth, and sustaining the development of uh, Jesus Christ, as what became to be known as the Virgin Birth. It was indeed a miracle birth, the power of God Himself in Mary's body not much different as it was as David expressed it earlier that God was influencing and knew what was happening in his own life though in the case of David it was not a a, a divine birth in this case it was God influencing it. Okay, And then in uh, Acts 1 verse 8 we find another use of this phrase. as now the special power of the Holy Spirit is given to the disciples to commission uh, or to release and and progress the development of the gospel message into all countries in the world where the Lord Jesus Christ who was born of the Holy Spirit lived and breathed uh, until his uh, death on the cross but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay. And so this power was going to be given to affect the witness of the truth and the spread of the gospel message that was taken up by Jesus Christ. Wonderful uh, um, uh, events in the New Testament now our time's run out um, we, uh, we really don't have time to talk about the Holy Spirit gifts though that is another subject so come and talk to me afterwards about that that's another development of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit that God had intended for a very special purpose so, so really what have we learnt uh, this evening here's a summary <clears throat> is God is a spirit okay The Spirit of God is the breath, word, and life of God. The Spirit of God is inseparable from him and is the power that creates, sustains, and preserves life in the universe. It is also an attitude or behaviour to godliness. And we saw that inflection in some of those uh, uh, comments in in the Psalms and also uh, Jeremiah. The Holy Spirit of God was and is seen active in people's lives in both the Old and New Testament. And then I'd like to come to this little concluding uh, verse from 2 Timothy 3, 3.16, because now we've got the real issue of why it is important to understand that God, his moral integrity, his physical Holy Spirit are inseparable and important to us today. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. We've talked a lot about how God breathed and commanded things. Well, he also breathed and commanded a remarkable book. All scripture, uh, Paul writes, is given by the inspiration. And that word in the Greek is theonutos. Now, we've got our word pneuma in the middle of it. Theo is the Greek word for God. Neutos is the Greek word for God breathing something. And why is it important? Well, Paul impresses upon Timothy that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, and children with us this evening, there's great value in in partaking or understanding what the spirit of God is and by reading his word you can partake of things that are profitable, beneficial, correcting and godly. And so we encourage you to read as much as you can of what God's breathed in the coming days. Thank you.